pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, please speak to us through your word. Open our hearts and our minds to receive by your Holy Spirit. Encourage and equip us in all areas of life to live kingdom first every day of every week of every year for the honor and glory of our King. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning I will be using Martin Luther King throughout my message, not because it, has, it is Martin Luther King Junior Day or weekend or anything else, but because his life has a number of parallels to what I wanted to talk about today. In 1963, most Americans disapproved of the March on Washington. Just before the march, only 23% of Americans favored the opinions proposed by civil rights demonstrations. In 1966, just three years after, 72% of Americans had an unfavorable view of Martin Luther King Jr. While 80% of whites and 30% of blacks believed that the demonstrations done by blacks for civil rights were actually hurting their cause. Dr. King was also called a communist and a traitor. The struggles that he faced during his own time increased when he took a stand against the Vietnam War. The struggles continued even after his death as some fought to create a federal holiday and many more didn't want it. It would take 15 years before Ronald Reagan would sign a bill into law creating a national holiday for Martin Luther King Jr. And it would take until January of 2000 before every state would actually celebrate it. Now, most, probably everybody here, would probably agree with what he fought for. There are still plenty in our country who do not, but the vast majority seem to believe in his cause that it was the right thing. He struggled for the right thing. He struggled against everything that stood against him. He fought the right fight. And this morning, I want to talk about the right fight. Are we fighting the right fight? Now, it is likely that none of us are ever going to have a national struggle for the rights of an entire ethnic group. That's a very large struggle. But all of us have struggles in our lives. We have struggles where we fight for security, we fight to be seen or heard, we fight for equality, we fight for our own views and opinions on things. Quite often we fight against other people, not necessarily physically, but we fight against them. We fight against something they say or they do or an attitude. All of us have fights. But are we fighting right? Is it the right fight? And how do we know? As our account opens this morning in Mark chapter 14, we see the Jewish leaders fighting for something. If you would, open your Bible to Mark chapter 14. We will start in verse 53, 
Mark 14 and verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, those two verses are somewhat transitional. They're bringing us from his arrest to the trial, but they're also foreshadowing. Next week, we talk about Peter's betrayals. And so this gives you the hint that he's been following behind and he's there. But the main section we want to look at begins at 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Summary statement of what they were doing. They brought him to the house of the high priest. They're bringing testimony, but they can't find enough to condemn him. And then Mark gives a little details. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Notice two charges. It's false testimony, but even the false testimony doesn't agree. False testimony and inconsistency, both. Specifically, here's one issue. Verse 57, some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So he gives this picture where they bring them all to, they bring Jesus and all this counsel, and they have him on trial, and all of the testimony that's being given, it's wrong testimony, and it's inconsistent testimony. And specifically, there was one thing where they were saying, he said he would destroy this temple and make another one. But even that, it was all inconsistent. Here's the picture that I believe is typically painted about these guys. They are very two-dimensional, and they're just bad. They're just bad people fighting for power. And there's no dimensionality to them. They're not real people. I want to paint a different picture. That these religious leaders are human beings. And you know what? All of us have mixed motives. So did they. Yes, some of them, they probably just wanted to condemn Jesus no matter what. But some of them, there's something else going on. And I don't want us to miss it because there's a lesson wrapped up in it. I'm going to jump back to Martin Luther King. For many reasons, including racism, politics, and fear for our country and ideals, Martin Luther King Jr. had to fight hard during his lifetime. Because others who were against him actually saw him as a threat. It was not anything like what we might think of today, where you've got kids in schools that are celebrating him, and we're looking at the I Have a Dream speech and everything is wonderful, most of the country was fighting against him. They believed so much that he was a threat that he was called, actually, I want to quote this, President Kennedy and the FBI following the March on Washington. They started monitoring him more. And this is a quote. They described him as demagogic, the most dangerous to the nation from the standpoint of national security. They saw him as a political agitator. 
They saw him as somebody that was a danger to our national security. What is so interesting about that is I want to read you something from John chapter 11. This is from the Gospel of John. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did and believed in him, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council, and they said, what do we do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, listen, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, for them, Jesus was a political and national threat. Why? Think about his message. He preached a kingdom that was more powerful than any other kingdom, including what? Rome. He spoke about the temple being destroyed. He spoke about not one stone standing on another. What would happen if somebody attacked the temple? There would be an uprising of Jews. There's no way the Romans could allow that. You know those scenes where they're describing Jesus and he's out in the country and there are hordes of people following him. What are those people not doing if they're out following him? They're not working. And you know who he is? He's an untrained, itinerant preacher who has no authority structure over him. You know what he looks like from the religious leader standpoint? A cult. Calling all of these uneducated people out to fall an uneducated man into something that, listen to some of his teachings. He forgives sins. Only God can do that. He says things like, I know you've heard Moses teach this, but I'm telling you this. You're putting yourself above Moses? Here's the thing. The religious leaders, they were not thinking to themselves, here's an innocent man that is just taking away our power and we'll do anything to make him guilty. They were thinking there's a guilty man who looks innocent and will do anything to show that he's guilty because he is. He threatens our nation. He threatens our traditions. He threatens what we have been teaching is the truth about God. Do they have mixed motivations? Absolutely. At one point, Jesus even says, you seek the glory of man, not the glory of God. How many of us don't? Is there a person in this room who doesn't at times seek your own glory? However, we need to see them for who they are. They are fallen, sinful men who are trying to fight for something they believe is right. They're trying to save their nation. How do they get it wrong? Because if you just look at all that and you think about the Hallmark card, it's the thought that counts. Well, guess what? They have the right thought. They are still wrong. I hate to tell you this, but you can have the right thought and still be wrong. You can even think you have the right motivations and still be fighting the wrong fight. 
what went wrong with them? And how do we fight the right fight? That's the question. What went wrong with them? Well, number one, they got Jesus completely wrong. They got the person of Jesus wrong. You see, they saw all the things he was doing. And you know what? Their interpretation of what he was doing has truth to it. He did place himself above Moses. He did forgive sins. He did teach the temple could be taken down, and at one point it would. All of those things were true. But they got him wrong. I am so fascinated by the text because they go out of their way to try to condemn this guy. They're bringing testimony, they're bringing false testimony, and yet, they can't even get that consistent. Here's the thing about the Jewish leaders. They were following the law. You needed two or three witnesses to confirm the testimony. The reason that the text goes on and the high priest has to stand up and begin to talk to Jesus is because all the false testimony and inconsistencies wasn't enough. These are not just bad guys. The high priest could have just stood up and said, oh, you heard all that, you're condemned. Instead, he stands up and says, now you've heard this testimony, what do you say to it? Because it's not enough. It can't get two witnesses to even agree on their false testimony. Now, here's what I think is going on. I think Jesus lived such a good life, such a faithful life to his father, such a compassionate and other-centered life that there were no skeletons to unbury. There was just nothing they had on him. Even when they're trying to make stuff up, they can't get it right. Because there is nothing that he left for them to get wrong about him. He lived a life of faithfulness and loyalty to his father in every way that he was supposed to. What it reminded me of, I wanna read you something out of a letter to, that Peter writes. Peter says this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, what's the answer to that question? Lots of people, right? I mean, just because you're zealous for doing good doesn't mean people don't wanna harm you. But he goes on. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is suffering for doing good. But he's doing so much good, he's living so faithfully, that even as they try to slander him, they are put to shame. When you look at the text, there's only one reason that Jesus is condemned. Look back at Mark. 
the only reason they can condemn him. So here's what the high priest does. He stands up and he says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And here's what I, here's again, my personal opinion. I think the high priest is a smart guy and he's completely aware that so far these guys have nothing on Jesus. And so what does he want him to do? Let's see, why don't you start defending yourself so I can find something to trap you with? Let me see if you'll say something to condemn yourself. And Jesus just remains silent, says nothing. What is it they're saying? Why won't you speak? And so then he does this. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Notice what happens. There is not enough to condemn this man. And all of those standing up and giving false testimony are being shamed by his life. The only reason he is condemned is because he condemns himself. It takes the testimony of Jesus offered freely to condemn himself. His life is so good. So if you have, I'm, I'm gonna do this a few times between now and the end of basketball season. I have to. But if you've been watching any of the Mavs games, there is something going on at their away games that is so abnormal. You just don't see this. Everywhere they play, opposing audiences, opposing fans are giving standing ovations to Dirk Nowitzki. An opposing player. I mean, they are literally standing for him to honor him. This season, as the, he played what would probably be his last game against the Clippers, Doc Rivers, eight seconds before the game is over, calls a timeout. And it's like everybody is going, what in the world is he doing? Because there's no reason. They're winning the game. There's no reason for a timeout. He calls the timeout, and he goes over and grabs the mic, and he begins to praise Dirk Nowitzki, an opposing player from the coach of another team. I want to tell you something about Dirk. There just aren't players like him. And it's not because I'm a Dallas Mavericks fan. This guy has spent his life playing the game right. He doesn't take cheap shots on the court or off the court. He doesn't have any pride in the sense of what you see so many other players have. If you follow his Twitter account, he's constantly making fun of himself. He has so much humility and yet he is so good that nobody has anything bad to say about this guy. And you're witnessing it. You're witnessing opposing teams who are honoring him because he has played the game right. If you go back to the finals when the Mavericks won, and I mean, if you watched any of that, you cannot forget the scene where Dwayne Wade and LeBron James start mocking Dirk's sickness. He got sick during the finals, and there's this video where they're like, <laughs> and they're making fun of him. And when that went live, everybody around the nation blasted these two guys. There were even Heat players, sorry, fans, who blasted these two guys. Because you cannot slander a man who has lived his whole career doing it right. 
That's what we're called to as believers. You see, it's not just our Savior who lived this way. It's the calling of every single person who follows him to live like he lived, to live lives that are so good that you can't be slandered, that you're choosing the right things. And if you are slandered, it's not because your attitude was wrong. It's not because you did something out of spite or bitterness. It is only because those who are slandering you are bitter and doing it out of slight because you have lived rightly. That's what we're called to. And the first reason these guys fought the wrong fight was because they did not understand the character and person of Christ. If they had known who he was, they might have seen what he did differently. And I will tell you, you and I, everybody in this room, we have conflict with other people. And one of the ways that we fight it wrongly is we do not see the fullness of that other person. We interpret them in light of the thing that we're upset about. And we see only that sliver. That's exactly what the Jews were doing with Jesus. All they saw were the teachings that endangered them. All they saw was this uneducated peasant. They did not see the very thing that he just claimed and all the power that supported it. They did not see the man who showed compassion to so many people, who humbly came in and ministered. They did not see the man who constantly came before his father and sought him in prayer. We do the same thing. We narrow people down to that one thing that we're so upset about. And that's how we interpret them. And now we're fighting the wrong fight because every one of us is bigger than that. Every one of us has more to our life and our character and our person than that one thing that we latch onto. How do we fight the right fight? We need to see people for who they are, the fullness of who they are, and live lives that are good always. But there's a second thing they do. They also get the situation wrong, completely. When Jesus says what he does, I am, I, and you will see um, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He is he's going back to Daniel and to Psalm 110, and he is stating something really huge about who he is. This is not just Messiah, but this is Son of God Messiah who will sit at the right hand of God and who will come back at the end for judgment. That is a huge statement about what somebody is, who somebody is. But do you know how they're interpreting everything going on? They're interpreting it in a closed system of thinking. God is not part of their picture. What they already believe and think is the totality of what they are using to interpret what is going on. So when he makes this radical claim, last week I talked about a particular section where Jesus says, the gospel's being preached and the most notorious sinners are having life change. And you guys still don't believe in change. 
Because Jesus believed that when you saw the power of God working in that way, you would know that God was working and that something might have to change in the way you see things, the way you think. But they were in a closed system. They already had it figured out and they weren't really factoring God into the equation. And you know what? If you don't factor God into the equation, what Jesus is doing in the first century, you absolutely need to get rid of him because he is getting ready to tear down your nation. But if you're factoring God into the equation, you have to rethink your limited ability to think. And here's how I tend to respond to things, and tell me if you relate. When I find out something bad is going on, I begin to have a monologue in my head. I begin to turn my wheels about all of the bad things, about how I don't know how this is gonna work out, about I just, I mean, there's no way this can help. And then I get sad and I get depressed. And then those things start driving me, those emotions start driving me. You know what I'm doing? I'm thinking in a closed system. I want you to imagine what the garden scene would have looked like. We studied the garden two weeks ago. Imagine if Jesus went into the garden and this was what started happening. Oh my goodness, I have never been sin for the whole world. How am I gonna be this? And I'm gonna be alienated from my father. I've never experienced that before. And then you start feeling all of that. That is terrible and awful. And my friends over there, they're gonna leave me. Like the people that are closest to me that I need are gonna walk away. How am I gonna do this alone? This is never gonna work out. This is awful. Imagine if that's what he did in the garden. That is a closed system of thinking. It's a monologue. But that's not what he did. He went into the garden and he talked to his father as part of the equation. So this uh, past week, um, Aaron and I were looking over some of my son's um, assignments. And we noticed on a couple of these assignments that the grades looked off. There were some things that looked like they weren't graded correctly. And in particular, there were two spelling tests. And on these spelling tests, in one, the challenge words were graded and they were marked off and he missed points for them. But on the other one, they weren't. And so we, had a, we ended up having a, a meeting with the teacher and we sat down with her. And, and I showed her one of these gradings and I said, and I was a little nervous about confronting her because she's a teacher and you know, teachers are always right, aren't they? <laughs> And so I'm kind of nervous doing this thing. And, and, and I show her one of these, and I'm like, you, you, you missed this thing. And she's looking over it, and she's looking over it, and she's adding stuff up, and I'm going, oh, no, I'm wrong again. Like somehow it's bringing school all back again. I'm wrong. And she's going over it, and she goes, oh, no, you're right. I missed this. And I went, Whew. And then I start feeling a little bit more confident. Okay, my next one, I'm probably right on that one too. And so she corrects that, and then she looks at the spelling test, and I go, okay, let me ask you a question are the challenge words counted as points? She goes, no, they're just extra credit. And I'm like, yes, I got her. Which is you know, a terrible thing to think. But that's, I'm like, yes, I got her. And so I, I give them to her and go, well, you look at this though. Like you graded him off for one, two, three. He only missed one, but you graded both of these two. And she goes, no, I didn't. I'm like, sorry, but look at the paper. You did. And she goes, no, and she flips it over. There's two wrong on the other side. What? <laughs> and I flipped the other one over. There's a whole other side to both sheets that I did not even factor into my equation. I did not see them. I was so upset by the discrepancy on the front 
I didn't even think to look it over. There's an entire other side. That is exactly the way that so many of us handle our struggles. The other side is God. The other side is God in the equation. But so often, we get stuck on the front side. I do it all the time, and I gotta break myself out of it because we cannot fight the right fight when we are having an internal monologue about how awful things are and there's no way of getting out of it because in our own strength, we can't get out of it. Because guess what? If it's only the monologue, all your fears are real. They are true and they are probably gonna come to pass. So don't delude yourself. But if God is part of the equation, anything is possible. There's a different way of viewing it. Not saying bad things won't happen. I'm saying they're different when God is part of the equation. And we can see it differently when God is part of the equation. But you cannot fight the right fight when it's this closed off system without factoring God in. So, I think what ultimately makes the difference is this. Jesus listened to God. And the only way to fight the right fight is to listen to the right voice. Far too often, we only listen to our own voice or to our circumstances or to our emotions. But Jesus listened to the right voice. And that's exactly what happens in the garden. As he comes in and he says, I don't want this. Nevertheless, your will be done. Not what I will, but what you will. He is listening. It even explains, in my opinion, why he answers the question. I mean, think about this. Jesus has spent his entire ministry pretty much saying, don't tell people about me. Don't tell people about me. Keep that secret. Demons, don't say anything. People, don't say anything. Disciples, don't say anything. Now he stands in the one moment where he has been completely silent and they cannot condemn him. He could have got off scot-free. He could have left this trial and never gone to the cross. But instead, he chooses this moment to go, yes, finally, I am the Messiah. Everything I have not been saying, everything I've told everybody else not to say, in the moment it will most condemn me, yes, I am the one. Now, is that a total slip-up on his part? No, because it was the time. And in the garden, he said, I'm gonna follow your will. And this was the time. Yes, I am the one. Yes, this is the plan. Yes, this cup will not pass. I will drink it. It is mine and I'm here to take it. But the only way to get to that point was to listen. The only way he could ever fight the right fight is by listening to God. Because otherwise, he's gonna do his own thing. If he had gone into the garden and just had the monologue, man, I don't know what the future would have looked like. But he listened instead. And listening can change everything. Let me go back to Martin Luther King. A few of you may remember this. Some of you weren't even around when I talked about this. His most famous I Have a Dream speech, his aides convinced him to leave the I Have a Dream part out completely because he had talked about it so much. The metaphor that he used, and if you go back and you watch the speech, 
the metaphor that he starts with is a bad check. And that was supposed to be the metaphor all the way throughout. He decided on the bad check versus the I have a dream. And the manuscript has nothing in it about I have a dream. And so as he is up there and he is doing it, he gets to a point. And uh, so here's something you've probably not heard, but this is part of the thing. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note in so far as her citizens of color are concerned. And he goes on to talk about this image and this metaphor of the check throughout the speech. However, there is a point where he gets to this line. Go back to our communities as members of the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Dissatisfaction. But you've never heard that line. And there's a reason why, as I say it. Could you imagine that rallying the troops? Because when he got to that line, he knew it wasn't right. And he skips down a few lines, and he begins to both from the script, and he starts to ad-lib. Instead, it's go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama, go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and the ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. And then there's a pause. And it's in that pause that if we had had today's recording equipment, you might have heard this. From 50 feet away, Mahalia Jackson, his favorite gospel singer who had began traveling and doing things with him, yells out, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And at that point, he takes the speech and he pushes it aside. And his speechwriter says this to somebody next to him. He says, those people don't know it, but they're about to go to church. And he gives 300 plus words that are the most powerful words of the entire speech that everybody remembers that become even the name of the speech. Ad lib, I have a dream. Imagine if he hadn't listened. We only have that because he listened. Are we listening? We must listen to the voice of God or we will never be fighting the right fight. How do we listen? I wanna give you just a few little practical things and I'll come to a close. Number one, and this is really obvious, but it's not practiced very much. We need to seek it. Our prayers have to be more than monologues. We've gotta give time for God to speak. Coming in with all of our issues, all the things we're fighting against, all of our struggles, and yet giving him time to speak. And if he doesn't, come back again. And if he doesn't, come back again. Keep coming. Because our God wants to speak. We hear it when we pray. We can hear it in scripture. There's a reason we're to know the scriptures. You see, we call it the word of God. Now, for a moment, take that literally. These are not just words that tell us about God. They're God's word. 
Which means when you are reading and learning this, you are hearing God speak. The reason we're to know it is so we know what God wants in our lives. Not that so we can every time have to flip and go, what was that verse again? Can't live that way. It's to internalize and it's for the word of God to become part of us because this is his word. Knowing his word. Number three, and I'm gonna kind of extrapolate from that. Every single time you hear a sermon preached, the hope is you enjoy it, you get something out of it, you learn something. But the real hope is that you're hearing God speak into your life. I am not primarily up here just to teach you the scripture. I am here because God is speaking. And what I would love for every single person who ever hears a sermon, I don't care if I'm speaking it or somebody else's, is that you come in going, God, what do you have for me? Not just what knowledge can I learn, but God, speak into my life. Like I'm here to hear from you. That is part of how we hear from the Lord. Same thing is true for those in our lives. Have you ever had somebody just say the right thing at the right moments? I'm gonna embarrass somebody right now, but I don't care because it's a good example. I can't tell you the number of times that Tim Archer has said something into my life at just the right time. And it was like, okay, there's God. And can I tell you something? You do not have to be Tim Archer for God to speak through you. You just need to be a willing vessel. You need to be in prayer. You need to be listening. You need to know God's word. So that at the right moment, you can say something that maybe you don't even know is God. And yet God speaks through the people around you. But we must listen. And I will end with this. Here is my fear for myself and for all of us. On, Jan on August 28, 1963, a man named George Raveling was on the platform with Martin Luther King Jr., not far away from where he was giving the speech. He was a coach from Villanova, and at the end of the speech, Martin Luther turns around, and he starts to walk away, and he rolls the speech up, and he gets ready to just stick it in his jacket. And George walks up and says, can I have the speech? And he hands it to him. And he walks away, and he holds on to the speech, and he has it today. That speech, people are willing to pay millions of dollars. It is the original speech sitting on the podium that he had that he was reading from. But what's it missing? The most important part of the speech. Isn't it ironic? You have the original words, but the most important part is when he listened to the voice speak and responded. Not what he had figured out and written down ahead of time. And here's my fear. I wanna hold on to this. I wanna hold on to what I've already figured out. I wanna hold on to the thoughts I currently have. I want to live in the comfort and the safety of that internal monologue instead of listening and going, wait a minute, that thing is not the totality of what God wants to do. God has more when we listen. And so I wanna listen. I wanna hear the voice of God, not be trapped 
by my own internal monologue, not be trapped by the things that have happened, but to believe in the things that can happen because I have a God who can do the impossible. Will we listen so we can fight the right fight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you would give us your word. May we see it as more than words on a paper, but as you revealing yourself to us, you teaching us about who you are, about who we are, your words in our lives. And God, teach us to come into prayer and listen, to not just let the silence cause us to give up, but to keep coming to our Father who loves us, even as we witness in our Savior. And Lord, that we would hear the truth and that we would fight the right fight. For your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen.